Well, it is my privilege once again uh, to meditate on the Word of God with you. So I want to invite you to grab your swords of the Spirit and turn to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. This is the first psalm of Book 3 of the Psalms. Uh, This one is written by a man named Asaph, or Asaph if you prefer. I like calling him Asaph. And he wrote... 12 of the Psalms in the entire book of the Psalms. And in fact, in book 3, he wrote 11 of the 17 Psalms in book 3 of the Psalms. So most of his are in book 3 of the Psalms. And so we're going to begin with this this first Psalm of book 3 of the Psalter. And we'll begin at the top with the, uh, the title. And we'll read the whole thing together. So Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when my heart was pricked and when my when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. The word of the Lord. Well, brothers and sisters, 
As we look around this old world, we've got to admit that it is awfully hard to see bad people prosper, isn't it? It's tough to watch. And that's because our own lifestyle choices that we make as Christians often mean that, well, that we're never going to have it made in the shade, right? I'm sure most of us have experienced the material cost of of our faith in some sort of way. And for, for Leslie and me, is uh, way back when we first got married, and I was early in my secular career, long before I was a pastor, as Leslie and I looked at, at the life ahead of us, we realized that we had seen far too many people divorcing their spouses on the way to the top. We had seen far too many people abandon their families along the way so that they could have the corner office. Now, of course, there's certainly nothing wrong, inherently wrong, with occupying a corner office. There's, it's a place where a strong believer can certainly bring glory to God. But Leslie and I felt like that the risk of doing so at the expense of what we hold dear as Christians was, that just was something we didn't want to risk. We didn't want to go there. And so honoring God for us meant that pursuing my career after my marriage and family was the right thing to do. This meant that I would never have the corner office, or I'd, and I'd never have the status and the privilege and the power and the income that came along with it. I know that Leslie and I aren't alone. Many of you have made the same kind of choices. The point is, is that we Christians make choices about how to honor God in our lives, and that often comes with a cost. And meanwhile, we watch people around us prosper, who are not interested in honoring God. Some of them are crass, profane, and ungodly people. I saw this all around me in the secular world. In fact, most of the people around me were that way. I watched people get promoted who didn't deserve it. I watched people attain a life of status and ease, and sometimes it was almost, it was almost as if they were being rewarded for their callousness and their arrogance. And you know what? As we look on all of that, as we look at those kind of people, it's really, really easy for us to become jealous of them. We can start to think that maybe their way is better than following Christ. We can, we can even become bitter toward God as we question why he would allow bad people to enjoy the good life while we Christians struggle to live in a world that's more and more hostile to us every single day. Well, these are the kinds of things that are vexing us off in Psalm 73. He's tempted to think that it's futile to hope in God and to have faith in Him. That maybe the wicked are better off than people like us. People like us who are so concerned about commandments and sin and honoring God and so on. In Psalm 73, there's a sense of futility that almost overwhelms Asaph as he compares his own situation to the riches and ease of the wicked. But then, praise be to God, he realizes the eternal worth of his relationship with God. And so as we turn to, to Psalm 73 and, and begin to meditate on it, here's the big idea, here's the premise of what Asaph is saying in Psalm 73. He's saying that it's tempting sometimes to think that the success of the ungodly means that our faith is futile. It's kind of a normal reaction sometimes. But our eternal relationship with God is better than absolutely anything else. 
That's what Asaph is saying in Psalm 73. And our take-home lesson from all of this is going to be this. It is good to be near God because nothing that the world can offer can come even close to knowing God forever. And so we'll take a look at this psalm in two parts and uh, the the lessons that we uh, derive from each part we take from our big idea. The first part is in verses 1 through 16 and we see that it is tempting to think that our faith is futile. And the second part is in verses 17 through 28 where we see that knowing God is better than anything. So let's take a look at that first point. It's tempting to think that our faith is futile. Asaf begins with his conclusion in verse 1. He says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. What he's doing is he's affirming what he's already learned in the struggle that he's about to tell us about. This is in the past tense that he's telling us. And so what follows in the rest of the psalm is the story of how he reached his conclusion that God is good to Israel and to him. And to get there, he goes from envy to doubting God, to contentment. And so this is a psalm about his own personal struggle. But it also speaks to the struggle of Israel as they watch pagan nations all around them prosper. The pure in heart are Israelites who are willing to persevere in faith even as pagan nations around them prosper, even in spite of evidence that seems to support the idea that God is not good to them. Namely, that the wicked prosper while the godly do not. And so in verses 2 and 3, Asaph states the problem, states it pretty clearly. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. What Asaph is going through here is, is far more than a fleeting thought. His faith is about to be seriously challenged. He's essentially about to compare his tiny little cubicle to the big corner office where the ungodly boss resides. And he's thinking to himself, so this is what faith gets me. This tiny little cubicle. Is faith in God really worth it? It's kind of like he's hearing about the fun that his classmates had last night when his dad made him go to bed early so he could get to church this morning. And he's wondering if listening to this sermon is worth it. He's envious of the good life that people are having outside of faith in God. Now, it bears mentioning here uh, to pause. It, it, we, we should remember what Psalm 1 teaches us, and it seems to teach us the opposite. It teaches us that the, only the righteous prosper and the wicked do not. Psalm 1 verse 3 says that in all a righteous man does, he prospers. But prosperity for a righteous person in Psalm 1 is a different kind of prosperity. What that's talking about is that a righteous person produces the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so Psalm 1 is really addressing what godly prosperity is. Asaph is addressing worldly prosperity in Psalm 73. The worldly gain, the material gain, the status, the power. And so Asaph explains the reason for his envy of the prosperous wicked in verses 4 through 12. Now, what he says isn't universally true. 
of course. I mean, there are exceptions to this. Asaph wouldn't argue with this. There were times, after all, when Israel prospered materially, while the pagan nations did not. And in our own time, there are certainly Christians who prosper. There are some Christians who right now are making truckloads of money. There's a, there's a quarterback in the NFL who this year, this year alone, is going to make $27 million. I can't imagine that. And we need to be praying for him that he uses that wealth in a godly way. But at the same time, there are also unbelievers who are, who are just dirt poor. And so what Asaf is saying here isn't universally true, but the point that he's making is that really sometimes there just doesn't seem to be that much of a difference in the way God cares for us in the way that he even sometimes extends grace to the wicked instead of us. He extends grace to them by allowing them to be rich and healthy even though they hate God, and then meanwhile we're just struggling along. And so as we move on into these verses, let's just take a few minutes and let's just be envious with Asaph. Let's just be envious right along with him. Let's feel what he's feeling, okay? So in verse 4, he starts off with this idea that the wicked don't seem all that worried about death or even life. He says they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Asaph is pointing out how sometimes ungodly people not only live the good life, but they just seem unworried and unperplexed by the kinds of things that concern us believers. An example of this is in Romans 7.10, the very commandment that promised life proved death to me. We're really concerned about that idea. We're worried about the consequences of our sin. We're worried about eternity. But an unbeliever, totally unconcerned about that. They don't worry about stuff like that. I know unbelievers who simply think that we just stop existing after death. There's just nothingness. That's all it is. And there's just nothing to worry about. What life then means for them is that they pursue as much happiness as they can get right now. However they can get it. And by golly, they do, right? We've all seen this. They have a ton of fun and they flourish and they live long lives. Every single decision they make is about their own happiness. And meanwhile, we Christians are all about suffering and sacrificing for others. We're troubled over our sin. We're called even to deny ourselves. That doesn't seem very fair, does it? In verse 5, Asaph goes on. He says, The ungodly often don't seem to face the kinds of struggles in life that we believers face. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. And so we hear about missionaries who die very young of disease or violence. We heard about Nabil Qureshi today. He's only 34 years old. Man, a servant of the Lord. But he died yesterday of cancer. We struggle ourselves to pay our bills. We work hard to tithe and, 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 to, and to do our jobs well. We go to church. We care for our families. And at the same time, man, the wicked are just living high on the hog from ill-gotten gains. We all know about celebrities who are just rolling in the dough right now because of the perverse and profane stuff that they produce. We as believers grieve over broken marriages, but unbelievers just file for divorce and move on. 
As, un, as, as believers, we're called to humility, but with unbelievers, there's a, there's a haughty pride. They're, they're essentially proud of their pride, if, you, if that's possible. That's what verse 6 is about. Therefore, pride is, a, is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. The wicked wear their pride unashamedly and brazenly. It's like a badge of honor, even though it's really a badge of dishonor in God's eyes. Their, their pride leads to all kinds of violence. The wording here implies social injustice and oppression. And so the idea is that they do violence to God's character and holiness because they esteem themselves as higher than God. In other words, they become proud of their sin. And they do iniquity that does violence to godly principles. And that violence even becomes oppression for those of us who want to live for God. We feel that pressure more and more with each passing day. That's what we're seeing all around us in our culture today. And so, you know, kids, it's even why your parents have all of those restrictions about your phone and your social media and TV and all of that. They've got to protect you from people who are proud of their sin. They're so proud of their sin that they want to put it on display for anybody to see. And they want you to participate in it. And by the way, it's the kind of stuff that isn't just bad for kids. It's bad for anybody. It's bad for adults too. And yet these people are so proud of their sin that they put it on display. And God allows them to get away with it. This is the problem that Asaph is, is feeling right now. Can you, can you start to feel his pain? It seems like the wicked have everything that they could ever wish for. Verse 7, their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They can do whatever they want because they don't have any restrictions. They can go online at any time they want to. They can say whatever they want to. They can do whatever they want to. The wicked don't have to do their homework because it honors God to be a good student. Yeah, mom and dad, I get it. The wicked, they don't have to obey the Ten Commandments. In other words, those who are ignorant of God's laws, to those who reject his commands, it's as if there isn't even a single commandment. The word of God is folly to them, is what Paul said. The wicked don't have to put their marriages first. They don't even have to get married. The wicked can do whatever they want. Their only rule is if it feels good, do it. There's no limit to what they desire, and there's no limit to how they'll get it. Leslie and I knew a guy a long time ago uh, who did exactly that. He... He told me this very proudly. He, he went to go buy a car one day, and he goes to the car dealership, and he talks to the salesman. They agree on a price for this new truck that he's, that he's going to buy. And so the salesman goes off and fills out the paperwork, but, but he did it wrong. The salesman did it wrong, and he, and he put a two where there should have been a three or something like that. Well, all in all, the paperwork said that the truck was going to cost my friend ten dollars to $15,000 less than the price that they agreed on. My friend saw this, and so he signs the paperwork real quick and hands it to the salesman. And then he refused, when the salesman noticed his mistake, he refused to correct the problem. He refused to cooperate. And so he got a truck for ten dollars to $15,000 cheaper than, than even the retail price. And so the dealership lost thousands of dollars, and the salesman lost his job. My friend, he didn't, he didn't care. He wasn't a man of integrity. 
He cared more about his money than his integrity. He, he cared more about his money than the salesman and his job. He cared more about himself than what was right in the eyes of God. He couldn't have cared less what God had to say about that. And yet God let him get what he wanted. And so because of his foolish pride, he was willing to resort to moral violence. You see why Asaph is vexed. It vexes me too when I see things like that. God, God allows the wicked to do wicked things and yet the wicked flourish in their wickedness. That's a lot of wickedness, isn't it? And this is the kind of ungodly character that Asaph continues to complain about in the next two verses. They scoff and speak with malice loftily. They threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. And so the wicked just puff themselves up. Their arrogance becomes godlike with a small g. This is their own vision of themselves. They become wise in their own eyes and in the eyes of others. In verse 10 and 11, Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? They approach God insolently and with sarcasm. And so what Asaph is complaining about is then since God has allowed ungodly people to flourish and to prosper in their evil, they think that God doesn't care about their sin or maybe he doesn't even know about it is their knowledge in the Most High. They see God as impotent and powerless against their own perceived superiority. And this convinces other people to follow them. And they doubt God, if not outright reject him. And then they turn to others and try to convince them to do the same. And so Asaph laments in verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. And so all this produces the crisis of faith that Asaph is experiencing. In verses 13 and 14, Asaph confesses that in light of all of this, it seems like that his faith is in vain, that it's all just futile. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. His diligent faith seems all for naught. It's just all futility. It's all just vain. And not only that, it almost seems like God is punishing him. Isn't that what we tend to think when things are hard, when life is tough? It goes through our mind, well, God must be punishing me for something. I can't figure out what it is, but he's got to be punishing me because that person over there is living the good life and I'm not. Life is really hard for me. And so when our trials last for a long time, we can lose our confidence in God. Asaf asks the question that's on our hearts in those kind of moments in one of my favorite psalms, in another psalm, Psalm 77, verse 9. He says, has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? That's the way we feel in those times, isn't it? It seems like God has just gone away. It seems like he cares even more for the wicked than for his own people. And so Asaph is on the precipice of his faith. He's gone from envy to very, very real and dangerous doubt. Have, have you ever been on a high place and you've had this, this fleeting moment 
where, you, where you're afraid you just might jump. This, this happens to me every time I'm in a high place. I can't explain it. It's weird, I know. But, but I, it, it happens every time. It's an irrational and terrifying little thought. The, the good news is, is that I can control that thought and I can push it away and, and very quickly I, I gain control and realize I'm not just going to hop over the railing. But a soft He's not doing that. He's not able to push that thought away. He's not having a, a fleeting moment like mine. He's thinking very dangerously. He's thinking that it might be a good idea to jump. It might be better if I jump off the tower of faith and into a life without God because they seem to be doing a whole lot better than I am. See what God's doing for me. And so this is why in the next two verses he assesses the danger of doing so. Praise be to God that he does so that we can see the danger too. In verse 15 he said, If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. That's to say Asaph realizes that if he jumps over the railing into a godless life, he's going to bring others down with him. He's realizing that doing so is going to bring harm to God's people. Yet he's struggling to understand in verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. But that struggle, that struggle is what causes him to realize that he has not lost his faith. All he lacks is understanding and perspective. He doesn't yet have God's perspective on life. And in fact, he's acknowledging that there are some things about God that are just too mysterious and beyond our comprehension. Isaiah 55.8 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And so Asaph is realizing this, and he's realizing that God's reasons for the wicked's prosperity are just far beyond him. But just as his, his ways and thoughts are far greater than ours, that doesn't mean that we should jump over the railing either. Yes, it's tempting to think that our faith is futile, but it isn't until we bow before God in his sanctuary that we're able to see the true picture of things. And this is where we can go to our second half of the psalm and see that knowing God is better than anything in verses 17 through 28. Verse 17 is the turning point of this psalm. This is the turning point for Asaph. He's gone from doubt or envy to doubt gone from envy to doubt, and now he begins to realize contentment in the Lord. This is a wonderful thing. And so verse 16 set up the thought of verse 17. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Now Asaph sees the truth about the wicked. When Asaph bows down to worship God in the sanctuary with his fellow believers, that's when God gives him understanding and insight. Isn't that a good lesson for all of us about the importance of this gathering? The purpose of this worship service is not only that we might praise God, but that God would reveal his truth to us. It happens in a variety of ways. It happens through our singing. It happens through the preaching of the word. It happens through our fellowship together as we testify about what God is doing in our lives. This is a very, very important gathering. 
And all of this happens whenever true believers get together. It doesn't matter where we do. But when we worship God, the Holy Spirit is there to minister and to edify and to bless us. 1 Corinthians 2.12 says, Now we have received not the spirit of the, wor- of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand things freely given us by God. You see, the word is folly to the unbeliever. He doesn't get a whole lot out of a service like this. But for the believer, the word of God is truth. And the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to understand his truth. And so here's what the Holy Spirit gives Asaph to understand in verses 18 and 19. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. And so instead of his own feet slipping, as they were about to do in verse 2, it's actually the feet of the wicked that are unstable. They're the ones on shaky ground because God puts them there. Truly, you set them on slippery places. God doesn't allow the wickedness of the ungodly to stand. Though it may seem that unbelievers haven't made in the shade in our world, they cannot stand before God. In the end, they don't just fall. God makes them fall to ruin. He destroys them and he sweeps them away in terror. And they are, in fact, as insignificant and fleeting to God as a bad dream, in verse 20. As soon as God rises to act, poof, they're gone. You know, I, I, can, re- I, I, I can only remember one dream that I've ever had in my life. I've had lots of dreams. I remember that I had one when I wake up, but I can never remember what they were about. They're just gone. That's what a wicked person is to God. And as Psalm 1 taught us, they're worthless in God's eyes. The wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away, and the way of the wicked will perish. There's nothing sadder than that. And so next, in the next two verses, Asaph confesses his ignorance. He was just acting like an ignorant brute when he doubted God. When he doubted that that God was good. (laughs) He was doubting God because of the prosperity of the wicked. It was foolish of him to think that God would reward wickedness with life. And so in the next two verses, Asaph proclaims the faithfulness of God and he, and he looks forward to the glorious future that he has with God. He looks forward to the life that he has with God. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. God has never let him go. In fact, it's God who's holding up his faith. The right hand is the symbol of strength in the Bible, and and the fact that God is holding Asaph's right hand is to say that God is his strength, that he really has none on his own. It is God who is his strength. It is God who has kept him, and it is God who keeps us from falling or from jumping over that railing. 
God also guides us. Now and onward, God guides our life of faith by the counsel of Scripture, by the testimony of fellow believers, and by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And it is through our worship in the sanctuary, our worship together, that God guides us. I think we probably all know believers who think they don't need the church. They think all that they need is maybe an occasional sermon on the radio to sustain their faith, and they read an occasional devotional. But Asaf would differ with that opinion because it's in the sanctuary that his epiphany comes, isn't it? Paul would agree with Asaf. Listen to how Paul puts it in Ephesians 4, 11 through 14. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to do what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's you. For the building up of the body of Christ. That's all of us. Until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine and by human cunning and by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Sounds exactly like what the wicked do in Psalm 73, right? And so it's through the church that God guides us. And he guides us through the church even as we deal with our temptation to envy the prosperity of the wicked. Even as we deal with their scoffing and their malicious schemes to lead us away from God, it is the church that God uses to strengthen us. And so as God guides us in a life of faith, he's guiding us also to glory, to eternal life with him, as opposed to the destruction of the wicked. God is promising life to the pure in heart, but to the ungodly, he promises ruin. And this is why Asaph makes a beautiful confession of faith to God in verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Nothing on earth compares to our relationship with God. God is everything. And by God's grace, we have him forever and he has us. And so while the ungodly cherish this world and and while they might attain the corner office through pride and arrogance and while celebrities might be swimming in money and fame because of the perversion that they create and while your friends might be allowed to use social media whenever they want, we have God. (laughs) That God is our portion means that that he is what's near and dear to our hearts. There's, there's nothing worth having that would mean losing our relationship with him. And that's because to have a portion in the Lord also means that we share the right of being one of his own, of being called his own, of being one of his children, of being allowed to be in his sanctuary to worship him. In truth, we have the right to be here because of the blood of Jesus Christ. This is the inheritance that Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 speaks of. 
In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Our portion in the Lord is our salvation. The Holy Spirit seals that guarantee until the day that Christ comes again to come back for us. And that means in the meantime, we have life. We have abundant life. And we have blessing beyond measure. We have the blessing of knowing God. There's nothing better than that. There's nothing more valuable than that. Even if it means suffering right now. And so what Asaf is teaching us is that we're the ones who are prospering, not the wicked. We're the ones who are really prospering. We have the riches of knowing God. The lives of the wicked are empty and without meaning. Their lives are worthless to God. They have no purpose and no meaning in their life unless they repent of their sins and bow to worship Him. And that's why, that's why we witness and why we evangelize and why we tell people about Jesus Christ. But even with all of their wealth, the ungodly, they're the ones who are impoverished and dead because they don't know God. Just listen. Listen to Paul's prayer for the believers at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 3. And I, I just want to invite you to close your eyes and receive this prayer because I believe Paul is praying for us as well today. Receive this prayer. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You and I can be filled with the fullness of God, brothers and sisters. That's the difference between us and people who don't know God. So what if the wicked prosper in this life? Look at what we have. We have the fullness of God forever. So that means that an imprisoned Christian in North Korea or a dirt poor believer in India who doesn't know where his next meal is coming from or even you are richer beyond imagination and that the richest man on this earth who does not know Christ is poor as can be. And he is, by the way because he does not profess Christ. 
your status is higher than the most privileged politician or leader who doesn't know Christ. And even if your parents are not going to let you onto social media right now, even though your friends have full access to the world's ungodliness right now, if you know Christ, you have full access to the everlasting God. And you have that access because your parents love you enough to keep, make sure that you keep looking to Jesus. There's nothing more valuable than that. And so Asaf sums up this contrast in the last two verses. He sums up this very clear difference between the prosperity of the wicked and the true goodness and prosperity of knowing God. Verse 27 and 28, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. So Asaph has gone from an intense envy of the prosperity of the wicked to doubt about God and now to a total contentment in God. And the reason couldn't be any clearer. Though the wicked might have it made in the shade today, God will put an end to them and he will give us life. For those of us who remain faithful to God, it is good to be near God because God is our refuge, because we have life and eternal safety. And so it is true what Asaph said in verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel. God is good to the church. God is good to you and me. He is good to those who are pure in heart. But at the same time, You know, there's no doubt about it. It is tempting sometimes to think that our faith is futile as we look at the prosperity of the wicked around us. But we've got to remember that our eternal relationship with God is better than anything. It is good to be near God because nothing that the world can offer comes even close to the fullness of God, comes even close to knowing God forever. Knowing God means life. But if we jump over the rail of faith into an ungodly world, it means death. This is what the passage that Richard read a little while ago is about. 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Jesus put it more succinctly. He said in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And so the world, with all of its promises of status and prosperity and ease, falls so short of what God has to offer. All of those empty promises make us blind to God if we believe them. But what does all of this mean, really, on a practical level, to for you and me today, right now, Well, first of all, let's let's talk about what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that having things is bad 
or having money is bad, or that working hard and getting the promotion in the corner office, it doesn't mean that that's bad. It doesn't mean that you're sinning if you use social media. God just wants us to use those things and do those things in a godly way. But likewise, if God has not given you a lot, or if your life is filled with what seems to be more than your share of hardship, it does not mean that God has forgotten you either. What God wants us to understand is that whether we have a lot or whether we have little, whether we've got worldly status or not, whether our lives are relatively easy or not, God wants us to value him above all things. And this really boils down to a basic question about you. What's the point of your life? If some stranger were to come to your house this afternoon and take an inventory of every detail of your life, what would they conclude about your priorities? If they looked into how you spend your money and and the things that you value, the TV shows you watch, your internet history, the way you spend your time, the language you use, all the kinds of things that we know that God cares about, what would they say this evening when you sat down with them for their verdict? Well, this is the kind of inventory that God is taking of us all the time, but not in a creepy kind of way, not in an unloving kind of way. He does it because he loves us. He doesn't want anything to take his place, not because he's an egomaniac, but because he knows that our relationship with him is the only thing that is the best thing for us. He doesn't want our love of this world to get in the way of filling us with his fullness. And so, brothers and sisters, be encouraged this morning by the fact that God helped Asaf overcome his envy of the world, that that God helped him to become absolutely content in God. Be encouraged, even as you experience the worldly cost of following Christ, that he has given you the right to be his child. That's priceless, brothers and sisters. But that priceless gift is also something that God wants us to give away. As Asaf puts it with the very last line of Psalm 73, that I may tell of all your works. And so be encouraged this morning. If, if you've been convicted of your envy of the world, then bow before him now in this sanctuary, in the presence of other believers, of people who hold him dear, and repent like Asaf, and be content in God alone. And meanwhile, keep on living for God. Do whatever it takes, no matter what it costs, to live for him because you have the priceless gift of salvation and that's worth living for. And just be sure to tell everyone about what he has done in your life, about his good works and about the life that he's given you. Let's pray. Holy and gracious God, We thank you and praise you for the gift of life that you've given us. We thank you, Lord, that by the blood of your Son, that we have the right to be your children. And so, Father, we pray that that you would give us such a passion about that, that you would make us just bust at the seams to be able to tell people about you and to support people who do tell tell people about you. Father, we want to live in a way that brings glory to you. Give us, by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, the ability to do just that.
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.